This message this weekend, I believe, is going to impact a lot of people's hearts. Um, I mean, I believe every message we do, but this one here is different. Um, about a week and a half ago, this message, which I've taught in the past, uh, never taught it quite the way I'm going to teach it today, but I have taught it in the past. This message kept coming up on the inside. I'm like, I don't know if I want to, if I want to go that way, Lord. Um, I kept thinking it was just me, you know? And then it kept coming back, and I kept praying, Lord, what would you want me to do? What would you want me to share? What do you want me to teach? What do the people need to hear now? And this thing kept coming back. And honestly, at one point, I had half the message typed out, and I almost deleted it, because I'm like, oh, this feels like it's me. It doesn't feel like... And it kept coming back and coming back. So um, I'm going to ask you to really open your heart this morning. Open up your ears to really hear. Don't get distracted by things this morning. Put anything aside that you might be dealing with in your life, whether it's good or bad or whatever in between. Put that aside for just the next maybe 30 minutes and give me the opportunity because I know what impact this message had on me almost at this point 25 years ago. Okay, I, I, I know it was just a kid now. Um, <laughs> I know what impact it made on my life and I believe that there are individuals here uh, that either it's going to affect you directly or it's going to change the way you deal with someone or some individuals in your life. I want to jump right into a scripture in the New Testament um, in, in the book of Jude. Now, the book of Jude is pretty unique. It only has one chapter. It's just one, one short letter. Um, I'm going to start out in verse 20. I'm going to ask you to please make sure you follow on the screen. Uh, if you do have your Bible here, um, that would be a good thing to bring to church. Or if you have your phone, you have your Bible app, if you want to look at it, maybe in the favorite translation that you use, your favorite version, whatever it is. But it's an extremely important. Did you ever have a situation where you, you read a scripture that you've read many times, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like the Holy Spirit just, just hones in on it and it gets you to read everything else around it, and then you go, wait a minute, I had a completely different uh, perspective of this scripture. Um, that's what happened to me with Jude, verse 20. But you, beloved, so we know who this is written to. It's written to the church, right? But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. I'm going to read that again. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the what? looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And then verse 22 says, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So, so uh, let's read the rest of it. Let's read the rest of it and I'll go back because I, I, I'm, really, I'm really wanting to unpack this thing so that we walk away today completely equipped to do exactly what we're being commanded of by the Holy Spirit here. Now to him, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior alone who is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever, amen. amen. Now let's go back to this, okay? Because verse 21 is the thing that jumped off the page at me 
the other day when I was putting this message together. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thought all these 37 years that that's telling me to look for mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ for me, for myself. But that's not what it's saying in context. Because the very next thing he says, having compassion, okay? I thought this meant for me. But when you look at it in the context, Judah's instructing us to look for mercy for others, to go get mercy from the Lord for others, okay? It says to, the context of it is about mercy, having compassion, reaching out to the overwhelmed, to those that are overtaken by life's challenges or by sin. Hating the garment defiled by the flesh means we hate the manifestation of the sin that attaches itself to people, but we don't hate the people. Are we getting this? I know this is very cliche-ish, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. But the reality is we are to go to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive understanding, to receive mercy, compassion, so that we can reach out to those that are overwhelmed, reach out to those that are overtaken either by the life's challenges or by sin so that we can snatch them out of the flames so that they don't end up being completely overtaken by the enemy. Amen. This is about our love and our compassion for others. Are you getting this? Yes. Okay, because this is just the, not even the tip of the iceberg yet. All right? If we truly have God's nature, we should do all we can to help those that are overcome by the challenges of life. Now, I know there's people in here that are overwhelmed right now. I know every single one of us goes through seasons when we're overwhelmed. Yes or no? Yes. And I don't care what you say. You can have a smile on a Sunday morning and be dying on the inside. Okay, and we need to be, we, we who maybe are not in that season right now and know what it's like to be in a season of being overwhelmed, we need to be looking out for those that we see, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, the signs of individuals who are overwhelmed so that we can go to the Lord, receive mercy for them. Why? I'm getting ahead of myself again. Because when you're overwhelmed, you don't even have what it takes to look to God at that point. All you want to do is crawl up in a fetal position, suck your thumb, and wait for the thing to be over with. Yes or no? Yes. All right, good, good. So, the truth is, we should be there, willing and able to reach out to those when we see these things. If you're a genuine believer in Jesus, then our hearts should break when we see fellow believers struggling, backsliding, getting caught back up in sin again, or getting just overwhelmed like a tidal wave hits them of just the challenges of life. Some of our best friends, some of our family members, fellow believers are just overwhelmed right now with the complexities of everyday life. Jude said, on some have compassion. But it seems like compassion is in short supply in the church right now. Maybe if we learn how to recognize some of the, some of the signs of the overwhelm, will be equipped to come alongside them instead of being ready to dig their graves. Amen? Amen. So, I want to go to an incident that's recorded in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, specifically Numbers 13. And if you're a student of the Bible, you'll know already what this is all about, this entire chapter. Okay, let me give you some background here. Moses receives instructions from the Lord. And these instructions are, you're to take, Moses, you're to take one leader from each tribe. 
and you're to send them. They're right on the border of the promised land that God has been speaking to them about. He said, I want you to take them, 12 of them, one leader from each tribe, and I want you to send them over into that land. I want them to go and spy it out. I want them to see that it's exactly the way I've been telling you, even since before you left Egypt. Because in Egypt, God kept saying to them, I'm going to take you to a land that's very different than the land you're in now. It's a land that drinks from the showers of heaven. It's not like being in, in, in Egypt, where the only water you have is from the Nile. And they used to have to pump that water by foot to get the water from the river to their field so crops would grow. He said, the land I'm taking you to is a land that's lush, it's green, it's prosperous, it's rich everything grows there he said I want you to take one from each of the tribes I want you to send them there that they would see that is exactly as I said it was so he does Moses chooses one leader from each tribe gets them together gives them the instructions they go over to that promised land they spy it they view it they go around the land in different parts and they see certainly it is exactly the way God said it was but they bring a report back that overwhelms the rest of the community. I'm going to pick up here Numbers chapter 13, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are great size. We saw the Nephilim, which are the giants, and we, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we looked the same to them. Of the 12 spies, two of them had faith and courage to take the land, but 10 of them were completely overwhelmed by the prospect of having to fight the giants. In other words, all the goodness that God said was going to be in that land was not enough for them to overcome the fear of the fact that in order for them to take this land, in order for them to live in villages that they never built, to live in houses they never built, to drink from wells they had never dug, dug to, to eat from and drink from vineyards that they had never planted, that was not enough to overcome their fear, and they became overwhelmed. Why? Because they left the land that they were used to, even though it was a land of hardship, it was a land of slavery, but they got used to it. And that is the danger that happens in life when people are used to living in crisis all the time. Okay? You get used to it. And you start thinking, well, the devil I got is better than the one that I don't know yet. Okay? And so the fear that overtook them paralyzed them to the point where they started to now, instead of romanticizing something that was good, they started fantasizing something that wasn't true. The land devours. Well, how could the land devour if you saw people there? If there's people there, then obviously the land didn't devour them. But that's what fear does to you. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? When you entertain fear, you start to imagine things. You start to speculate. You start to develop a narrative in your head that is not necessarily true. Amen? Amen. So look what happens next. So remember, remember. I mean, this land is so plentiful. This land is so rich that Two people had to carry one cluster of grapes on a pole. 
this is something that we, we, don't, we have never seen. In fact, it so impacted the nation of Israel to that this day, if you go to the supermarket and you buy produce or fruit that comes from Israel, it has a stamp on it, and that stamp is their trademark. You know what the stamp is? Two guys carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole. The land was rich. The land was productive. It was, you could grow anything there. But there was giants. There were enemies. There were obstacles. Can I ask you something? Have you ever done anything in life where there was nothing to oppose you? Everything we do in life has an obstacle. Everything we do in life has a giant or a wall or an army that we have to beat. Amen? So look what happens now. Remember, 12 spies went out. Two of them came back and said, we're doing this. Let's go right now. We're well able. But 10 of them, 10 of them said, there's no way we can do this. No, we can't do this. They're giants there. And we look like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we did to them. There's something about fear that has the ability to recognize when someone's willing to receive it. Fear will come on you. If you give, a, give this much, fear will come on you. That's why when you're hit with any kind of bad report, when you're hit with something out of left field, the very first words that come out of your mouth are going to determine what course it's going to take in your life. I hope somebody's listening this morning. So look what happens. The very next verse is in Numbers 14. It goes from Numbers 13 to Numbers 14. And the very first verse tells us how the people responded immediately to this report. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices. Can we shut those doors back there, please? Raised their voices and wept aloud. Verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Wow. These are the people that saw the Red Sea part. These are the people that saw the plagues hit Egypt. These are the people who saw their God rescue them and take them out. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, we might as well have died in Egypt. Verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? What evidence did they have of that? None. He had protected them up until this day. Listen to, listen to how far the fear has taken a hold of their, their language, their speech. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Who said that? God never said that. They're saying this. Would it have been, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now listen to me. Listen to me. And please, if you have gone through this, I am not teaching this to shame anyone, to, to guilt anyone. I am merely making an observation of life. In 37 years of being a Christian, in 24 of those years being a pastor, I have seen this pattern over and over and over again. Listen to this. When a person, a couple, or an entire family are overwhelmed, we almost always see the same pattern. Number one response, weeping, wailing, depression, anger towards God. Number two, grumbling and complaining against the very people who tried to help them. 
Number three, the desire to go back to Egypt. The desire to backslide and go back into the world. Give me the chance to unpack the rest of this. Okay, I'm not here this morning to try to point fingers at anybody or even to myself because I've been through these things too. That's okay. We probably needed that little bit of lightness there. (laughs) What I'm saying is this. This happens when there's a bad doctor's report. It happens when a person falls back into an addiction that they've been previously set free from. It happens when a person is convinced that they don't have what it takes to overwhelm and overcome the circumstance rather than being overwhelmed. It's going to happen every time. Now look at this. How did the faithful react with the bad report of those 10 people? Numbers 14, verse 5. Now watch this now. Watch this now. Remember the scenario. The the 12 guys came back. They said, yeah, it's exactly the way God said it is. This place is, is amazing. But, and that's what happens when people get their but in the way after God has told them to do something. But there's giants in the land. There's enemies in the land. There's walls around the cities. Yeah, don't you think God knew there were giants in the land? Don't we think God knew that there were, there were walls around the city? But he said to them, every place your foot treads, I'm giving to you. But some of us have this idea that we're just, it's going to be smooth. It's going to be, listen, we have an enemy. We have an opposer. We have someone, we have an entity that does not want you to take hold of what God has for you. He does not want you personally to walk in your promised land. And he, he didn't want the nation of Israel to walk in their promised land. The liar, the, liar, the opposer, the accuser is always going to be there to tell you, you're never going to make it. This is too big for you. This is too overwhelming. You don't have what it takes. Okay? So now watch now. Out of this, now you're going to find four people. Out. Now watch yourself. Get this in context. Bible scholars tell us that by the time Israel was coming out of Egypt, that they would have been anywhere from two to two and a half to three million people. They went in 70 people 430 years previously. They multiplied. They prospered. And here we are, 430 years later, there's upwards from 2 million to 3 million people that are now following Moses and Aaron and all the rest of the leadership towards the promised land. And what's the percentage? If you've got 12 and two of them, what's the percentage? Somebody, somebody's good with numbers. Where's, where's Brian? He, he left the room. The, major, the great, great, great majority of those millions of people were the ones that were wailing, crying, overwhelmed. Out of all those millions, only four people took a stand. Only four people took the stand. Watch what they did. They saw this scenario. They saw these people crying out. They, they, heard, the, they heard the blasphemy. We should just, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt. It would have, they better thank God I wasn't God. I would have said, you know, and eventually, unfortunately, it happens. They get what they say. Verse 5 of of Numbers 14. Then Moses and Aaron, look at this, fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Verse 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were were among those who had explored the land. Those are the two that brought back the good report. What did they do? They tore their clothes. 
and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now what happened? But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. So here, Moses and Aaron fall face front, they face plant on the ground. What is that? It's a form of intercession. They began to intercede. Why? Because they know how serious this issue is. And if they're not able to turn these people around, they're going to die in the wilderness. The other two, Joshua and Caleb, what did they do? They ripped, they tore their clothing. Now, listen to me. We don't do that in our culture here, but even to this day, that was an ancient sign of grief, of mourning. There are still some cultures in the Middle East that do exactly that when there's a death, when there's some bad news that comes. You tear your clothing. These four people are very concerned for the welfare of the other millions. But watch this now. The best leaders of the land could not get them turned around. They couldn't get them turned around. And listen, this is the pattern of human nature that we see. And if you're not careful, and if you don't prepare yourself, when bad news comes, when a bad report comes, that is exactly how you're going to react, okay? Listen, God gave them exactly what they said. They signed their own death sentence. People say, because I've heard people say, well, you see how God punished them. No, no, God didn't punish them. God's trying to get them to turn around. But watch this now. Our words are powerful. They signed their own death sentence. They were basically saying, it's better for us to go back and die as slaves than for us to have to trust this God who says he's going to take us into this promised land. That's serious. That's serious. So what happens? Every single person from that two to two and a half million people who left Egypt 20 years and older, they perished in the wilderness. Not one of them got to see the promised land. Took 40 years, but every single one of them died except for Joshua and Caleb, the two who had maintained the right report. Now, you got this so far? Didn't end up well, did it? Okay. Let me contrast that with an incident, another incident in the history of God's people when they were overwhelmed. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. A messenger comes and tells him. He's in Jerusalem, okay? He, a messenger comes and tells him, there is a vast army coming toward you. They are almost here. They're bigger than any army you have ever seen. Would you say that's overwhelming? Yeah, yeah. Verse five, here's the response. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new court, courtyard and said, now let's contrast what he's saying compared to what those 10 said when they came back from spying the land. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. 
our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon it. Now, he's quoting Solomon when Solomon prayed when they dedicated the temple, okay? Saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine. Isn't that interesting? Let me stop there for a second. The sword of judgment. The sword of judgment. That means that there's sometimes that things come against individuals or families or nations that's coming because of judgment. Okay? Why are you saying this, Pastor? Listen to me. I'm just going to take a little side journey here for about a minute, less than a minute. We are in a nation right now that is ripe for the sword of judgment. When God wanted to judge his people in the Old Testament, he would call for a faraway nation to come and exercise judgment. Okay? I'm not predicting this and I'm not prophesying this. Okay? But you and I as church, as the church, better begin praying the right way and better begin interceding in the right way because there is a faraway nation that is prepared and ready to draw the sword against this country. In the meantime, the idiots, excuse me, okay, that, that call the shots in this nation want you and I distracted by every other stupid thing so that we don't see it coming. And don't, don't, don't you dare judge me about, this has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with spiritual principles. There is a sword that's drawn that if you and I, the church, do not stay that sword, that judgment is going to come against this country. Thank you. I feel better now. Yeah. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, or plague or famine, we've got all three going on right now. Yeah. You go to a supermarket, I feel like I'm, I'm in Eastern Europe back in the 1990s. There's two products on the shelf. There's nothing there. All right, let me mind my own business here and get back to this. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Man, how different from that other crowd. Verse 10. <clears throat> but, but now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. If you don't, if you don't know the story of the Exodus, you're not going to understand what they're saying. When the Jews came out of Egypt, they had to cross through certain people's territory. And they said to the people of Edom and Moab, and these same people that are now wanting to attack Jerusalem, they said, let us cross through your land. We won't touch anything. In fact, if we take any water or take it, we'll pay you for it. Just let us cross through your territory. We're not here to invade you, but we got to cross your territory to get over there because that land belongs to us. And all of them said no and brought out their armies to the border and said, if you dare cross into our territory, we will attack you. So Jehoshaphat saying, you remember this, God. They, they made us go all the way around the long way because they wouldn't let us cross to their territory. We never took a thing from them, and now here they are attacking us. 
What's the, what's the lesson here? When you get attacked by something, when you have something coming against you that's overwhelming, you can't take it personal. Joshua said, hey, hey, they're attacking your land. When stuff comes against you, you go to God and say, hey, I belong to you. This thing's coming against me. I'm looking to you to fight this battle. Are you getting this? See how they're repaying us by coming out to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. Look at this. It's the best place to be. But our eyes are upon you. So what happens? Jehoshaphat gets up. He prays this prayer. They receive instruction. In the crowd is a prophet. This prophet hears from God. He gives instruction. He tells him what to do. He tells him, go out into the place where they are, put, and put, get, get, get dressed up, put your armor on, get your weapons, but you're not going to have to fight this battle. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men, look at this, to sing to the Lord, to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. And as they went out of the head of the army... They put the singers at the head of the army. It makes absolutely no sense in the natural. They put the choir in front of the army. And what was their job to do? To sing, to worship, to praise God. And what did they say? Continuously marching out to the battlefield. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, this big army, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. What's the principle here? Okay. That's the introduction to the message. I'm not joking. That's the introduction to the message. This was what I learned from this 25, 26 years ago. My wife and I, our family, Pastor Cap, who, of course, wasn't Pastor Cap back then. Still Joe Cap, just like I, Joe Swartz, not pastor yet. We took a trip out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was April of 95. Exactly one week, one or two weeks after the Oklahoma City bombing. You remember that? Yes. Okay, you could feel the fear in the air, especially in Oklahoma. We go to the Bible school. We were there for the weekend. It's called Get Acquainted Weekend. And basically, it's a given opportunity for a person to come to see, hey, is this where you want to come to school? Okay? Just like, what do they call it? College weekend, stuff like that. So we go there. And on the first full day, which was a Friday, where we could go to the classes, we went to some classes, and then we found ourselves in a class with probably about 1,500 to 2,000 students. Okay? potential students, okay? And there was a person who was doing the teaching, instructor, somebody we've become really close friends since then, never knew him, didn't know his name, didn't know who he was, never met him before. And he's teaching a message entitled, Ministering to the Overwhelmed. Now, in this message, he taught everything I just taught from Numbers 13 and 14. And he talked about how because he's talking to potential pastors, okay? And he's talking about how when you go to the hospital to visit someone who's been told there's no hope, 
He said, what you don't do is bring them a book, bring them uh, scriptures, offer to, to what you have to, because they're so paralyzed in their mind with fear, they can't absorb any of that. He said, what you need to do is get them to begin to worship God to get their eyes off of the immediacy of this situation and get their eyes on God. Okay, look, now, don't, don't, please don't, because here comes the personal part. I had just left in New Jersey someone who God had put into my life who became a very close friend who was dying with AIDS. And we did everything wrong for that person. We're shoving books in his face. We're shoving, at that time, who remembers cassette tapes? We're shoving cassette tapes. We're wanting to give this scripture and that scripture. Meantime, behind the scenes, there's a whole group of people who's judging this individual because they had AIDS. Now, mind you, they had been fine for about 14 years. An original diagnosis, they're fine. Something happened, everything kicked in. And the last time I saw this individual, was the day before we left to go to Tulsa. And I'm sitting in his living room, and he's in the hospital bed. And I'm trying to feed him soup, and he can't even eat it because the flesh already started to break down on the inside. And I'm saying to this person, he was one of the first people I told what God had shown me. I said to him, you have to get better. I need your help. I'm coming back in two years to start a church. I need you here. And the funny thing about it, I've never wanted this guy in my life. I never wanted him and his wife. Just God just supernaturally put them in our... Well, I didn't even like... You ever have somebody you don't even like, and then you grow to love? Okay? So, so I'm in that class, and, and Doug Jones, the instructor, is teaching on ministering to the overwhelmed, and I get hit like a tractor trailer because I realize we just did everything wrong. And that's why this guy's laying in the hospital bed in his living room, and his wife would call me up and say, Joe, I can't, he's crying all night long, wailing all night long. In fact, at one point when he, when he found out that the, that the HIV went to full-blown AIDS, he went back to using drugs again, which he hadn't touched in decades. It was classic, everything that happened in Numbers 14. So I'm like, it would hit me so bad that people on the other side of the auditorium heard me sobbing, heard me crying. But I said, dear God, forgive us. We, did, we handled this all wrong. And I swore as soon as I get back to New Jersey, as soon as I get back to New Jersey, we're gonna turn this thing around. We got back in New Jersey that Monday after that weekend and five o'clock that morning, Tuesday morning, I get a phone call from his wife. He died. We didn't get the chance to turn it around. But I swore to God at that point. I said, Father, if you'll allow me, when we start this church, we will try our best never to make the same mistake again. Hallelujah. You listening to me? Yes. Get the eyes of the overwhelmed back on God. It's not gonna happen by loading them with materials because that's what we like to do. Because when... when can we be real transparent here today? Because when we come in contact with somebody that's overwhelmed, that overwhelmed, it's very uncomfortable for us. 
Yes, am I the only one? It's extremely uncomfortable. We feel helpless, we feel hopeless, we feel awkward, we don't really know what to do, so what do we wanna do? Here, take this, hey, read this book. Hey, go online, listen to this teaching. Hey, uh, take this CD, take that back then, take this cassette tape, do that. Hey, read these scriptures. The person's overwhelmed. They, they're, they're, they're grabbing at straws to stay alive, and we just wanna hand them stuff and walk away. Hey, I'll call you later. It doesn't work. What works? Worship. Amen. Worship. If you can get the person to just stop and worship. So let me tell you what happened. Two years later, we had the opportunity to put into motion. Christmas week of 1998, the church was a year old. The church started in 97. On Christmas, excuse me, on the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, I'm teaching a message. We were at the Primary Learning Center in Bricktown. Unbeknownst to me, one of our families had invited another family to come to the service. And I'm teaching on that scripture in Ezekiel about the dry bones. Can these bones live? I don't know if I could have preached a better message that day. Because in the back of the room was this husband and wife, had two little kids, this family that invited them brought them up front for prayer at the end of the service. Because my message, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Because that's an overwhelming sight when you see a valley of dead bones, okay? They bring up this individual in front of me. She's there, her husband's behind her. And it's explained to me what just had happened to this couple, okay? They had been in Disney in the middle of December down in Florida. They went there on vacation, took their two kids. They're having a wonderful time. The wife's not feeling good. She's having very bad symptoms, pain, and that. And she decides to go to one of these clinics, their walk-in clinic there in the Orlando area. She goes there. They run some tests. They say to her. Now, mind you, she's, she's, she's from New Jersey, but she's all the way down there. She's got her husband, her two kids, and the doctor says to her, get back to New Jersey as soon as possible. You don't have long to live. You have stage four breast cancer. They come back. They're paralyzed with fear. The husband's almost having a nervous breakdown. The couple that invited them brought them up for prayer. This is how I found out about all of this stuff. So this is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. She's scheduled for surgery on New Year's Eve day in the daytime. Okay, you follow me so far? I prayed for her. That's a whole nother testimony that I don't want to talk about right now because I don't want to distract from this point. I prayed for her at that point, a supernatural, supernatural move of the Holy Spirit, okay? Okay, but, but she's still in fear. Her husband's losing it, okay? I don't even know if the two kids really knew the situation because they were younger. So the night before she's going to go for surgery... I gather a couple of people together, about three people from our worship team that we had at that time. And I said to them, I don't remember what was going on at that time that I couldn't go myself. I don't remember. Something was happening. I don't remember what it was. And I said to these, these three individuals, one of them played guitar, the other two sang. I said, I want you to go to so-and-so's house, but listen to me. I don't want you to pray. I don't want you to bring them materials. I don't want you sharing scripture with them. All I want you to do is to get this husband and wife to worship Jesus. Amen. Are you listening to me? Yes. Just worship. Don't get involved in discussions. And I'm telling you, I'm charging you and commanding you as your pastor, follow these details 
to the last point. They did. They went there. Husbands in the living room, inconsolable. Okay? They're with the wife who's going to go for surgery the next day. They worship God. They spent an hour there. Peace comes upon the household. They go home. The next day, she goes in for the surgery. Okay? And she receives a report a couple of days later. No cancer in the lymph nodes. No cancer at all. Okay. No, 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 please don't do that. Okay. I appreciate it, honey. Please, I'm not reprimanding you. Please don't take it that way. I understand that. Why? Because she got a scripture? Because somebody gave her an anointed book? Because somebody laid hand? No, because they got her attention off of the paralyzing, overwhelming circumstance and put it back on Jesus. Are you listening to me? Watch this now. Okay, I'm going to try to wrap this up soon, but I don't want to shortcut anything. Jesus, at the Last Supper, knows what he's going to be facing. Are you following me? Jesus knows who he's going to be facing. How do we know that it was, it was weighing on him heavily? Because we know what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Okay? But he also knows that these disciples that are around the table are going to get hit at a left field because they have no idea what's going to happen within the next few hours. And what does he do at the end of the Last Supper? Never saw this before until I put this teaching together for this time right now. What does he do at the end of the Last Supper? Does anybody know? He sings. He leads them in a song. Why? Because he knows in just a few hours, not only is he going to get overwhelmed, but his disciples are going to be completely overwhelmed. And he's preparing them by doing what? Getting their eyes on God. What's he doing for himself? Fixing his eyes on God. Watch this now. Tradition tells us that the song that would have been sung at the end of Passover dinner was Psalm 118. I'm going to give you certain parts. I can't read the whole thing for the sake of time. But this would have been the song that Jesus would have sung with his disciples to prepare them for an overwhelming situation that they're going to witness. Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. What did they sing on that battlefield? Give thanks to the Lord for, his, for he is good, his love endures forever. Verse 2, let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Verse 5, when hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? He's singing this about himself. Okay, the Lord is with me. He's my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Verse 15, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The, Lord right, the Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Don't you know who the Lord's right hand is? Yes. Jesus is the Lord's right hand. Amen. Verse 17, I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 23, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, the Lord has done this the very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. He made sure he put the focus on God alone. 
He made sure the disciples who would be completely paralyzed with fear had the opportunity to fix their eyes on God. The biggest difference within the people of Numbers 14 and the people of Jehoshaphat's day was worship, worship. The first group did nothing but complain, speak what the enemy said, turned their tongue into a vehicle of propaganda for the devil. The second group refused to get their eyes on that vast army, refused to get into fear, put their attention on God Almighty, and God fought the battle. They did, none of those soldiers had to take the sword. None of them. That, why? Because the battle was won by Judah, the first tribe, the singers. Because you know what Judah means? Praise. 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 And so that's the principle. When you go into battle, you put Judah out front. You put who? The praisers out front. When you have a battle that you're facing, you set up your strategy in that way. Well, you put your song out front. You begin to worship. You begin to praise. You, be de- you begin to declare the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Amen. Is anybody listening to me this morning? Get your eyes off the circumstance. That's what Jesus did. He got his eyes off of it. He knew darn well what he was going to face. We know that. Why? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he suffers a complete physical nervous breakdown to the point where blood's coming out of his capillaries. He's overwhelmed, but he prepared his soul. He prepared the disciples to get their eyes on God. 